You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Nancy Lindborg. I'm the president here at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and I'm delighted to welcome everybody here for a very timely conversation uh, with Senator Mark Warner from Virginia uh, about the U.S.-China relationship, an issue that's getting a lot of attention these days. Um, Senator Warner has been at the forefront of China um, and has been a leader on the conversation related to foreign policy and national security issues both on China and through his years of service in the Senate. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, USIP was founded by Congress as a nonpartisan national institute dedicated to working with partners around the world to prevent and resolve violent conflict. And one of the things we do here in these, our headquarters in Washington is to provide a space for conversation about the most critical foreign policy issues of the day. And I think the US-China relationship certainly qualifies as that. Um, and that is exactly what brings us together. Uh, we've seen over the past decade how China has um, shifted many of its policies. It's become far more active in the international stage and particularly it's invested heavily in countries around the world and playing a much more active role regionally. Um, and we've seen this from North Korea to Burma to Africa. And so here at USIP, our China program, directed by Jennifer Statz, um, has really looked at what is the role of China in conflict-affected countries. And as part of that work, uh, US leads a series of bipartisan senior study groups, the first two of which have looked at um, North Korea, nuclear and peace negotiations, and China's role in Burma's internal conflicts. So I invite you to check those out on our web, um, which is where you can find them. It is my pleasure to introduce Senator Warner. Uh, he brings a very rich background, a very useful background that combines um, a business technology career with public service. And in addition to being the senator from the great state of Virginia, um, he has also served as Virginia, Virginia's governor. Um, he has a proven record of bipartisanship, working to advance US interests and security abroad. And most importantly, he's the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, Intelligence Committee, where he's worked with Senator Richard Burr and other senators on both sides of the aisle. So this, this combination of the private sector, technology world, and public service world, I think gives him particularly keen insights into the topic that we're discussing today. And he's really been in the forefront of leading conversations about technology, economic, and trade issues, um, all of which are at the core of the US-China relationship. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you for those who are joining us online. Um, uh, if you are using social media, please use the hashtag and join us for the conversation at hashtag SendWarner at USIP. And with that, please join me in welcoming Senator Warner. Thank you. 
Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for that introduction. Thank you for the great work that USIP does on so many subjects. It's great to see so many people here. I do want to acknowledge my dear friend, Ray Mahmood, who's uh, been a, we're just talking close to 40-year friend uh, and who is very involved, I know, not only in the U.S. Institute of Peace, but a number of terribly critical ventures around internationally and around the region. I um, want to commend the Institute for the important work you do on foreign policy challenges. I've got a lot to say, so, uh, and I want to make sure we've got plenty of time for our discussion afterwards, so let me get right at it. Um, today, I think there is a widespread understanding that confronting a rising China is the foreign policy challenge of our time. China is a global competitor of 1.4 billion people living under an authoritarian system of government that is vying for economic, political, and military influences globally. It is governed by the Chinese Communist Party, whose view of individual liberty, rule of law, and democratic values is starkly different from those of our own. On all these points, there is broad bipartisan agreement. However, there is far less agreement on what our responses to these realities should look like. How do we enact a strategy that continues to protect U.S. interests and international institutions while staying true to our values? I believe we can retain our leadership and global competitive advantage by embracing these defining characteristics that have made America the leader of the free world. Those characteristics are our belief in the rule of law, our checks and balances against government overreach, and our respect for the rights of an individual, especially when those rights come into conflict with the government or a majority faction. These values are the foundation of our international successes and of our strongest alliances. Today, China is offering a very different model to the world. It has achieved a meteoric rise while rejecting some of these core values. And I want to make one thing clear at the outset. My beef is with the policies of President Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party, not with the Chinese people, and especially not with Americans of Chinese descent. But the truth is, the Chinese Communist Party today is intent on fundamentally reshaping the norms and values that have underwritten decades of global stability, security, and prosperity. The question is, how do we respond? Do we engage China in a head-to-head Cold War on multiple fronts? Or do we embrace what I would argue is our more traditional leadership role and strengthen the international order that Beijing is attempting to upend? I would argue that the second approach of offering a better model to the world, one rooted in freedom and opportunity, is both consistent with our values and the approach most likely to succeed. First, I want to talk briefly about how we got here. In many ways, we're having a conversation like this because the conventional wisdom has changed rapidly over the past few years. Until recently, conventional wisdom told us that the U.S. and China would both rise together, two nations intertwined, 
partnership in trade, business, and education. Like many, I hope that the PRC's greater global integration would lead to a more open, prosperous, and potentially more democratic China, and that a rising China would be good for the world. Today, it is clear that the aims of President Xi and the Chinese Communist Party do not align with that vision. Instead, the Chinese government has worked to challenge the rules-based international system and expand its brand of global influence, military, military presence, and economic power. It is time to wake up to the fact that Beijing is pursuing a strategy not only to strengthen China, but to explicitly diminish U.S. power and influence. To do this, the Communist Party is exploiting all the elements of state power to strengthen China's position in the world. And they're doing this at the expense of human rights and human dignity. The way I see it, these efforts fall into four buckets. Military power, influence campaigns, economic expansion, and an area that has not received enough attention, science and technology policy. First, on the military front. The People's Liberation Army, the PLA, is expanding both its own domestic bases and starting to establish bases overseas. China's naval forces are now able to conduct operations further from home, in the Indian Ocean, the waters around Europe, and the Western Pacific. Under the doctrine of military-civilian civil fusion, Beijing has pursued a cutting edge, set of cutting-edge technologies, such as AI, unmanned systems, and hypersonics, which will be the essential to 21st century warfighting. And the PLA is modernizing its military at a fraction of the cost that those of us in the West are approaching. They're effectively skipping a generation of expensive R&D by, by adopting platforms from foreign militaries or sometimes stealing the intellectual property to do so. Contrast that with the United States, where we continue to spend $750 billion on defense, including expensive updates to legacy military systems and platforms. To compound this, China is focusing its efforts on tools of asymmetric warfare, like cyber, space, and misinformation and disinformation. U.S. defense and intelligence officials are increasingly concerned that the PLA now threatens the United States, in the United States in specific domains such as cyber and space, and that China even leads in specific military technologies, again, such as hypersonic weaponry. Former DNI Coates and others have warned of China's ability to target critical infrastructure right here at home, like our electric grid using cyber attacks. I worry as well about the PLA's willingness to use cyber theft for economic espionage. The truth is China is demonstrating that wars with near-peer competitors may no longer be a traditional mill-to-mill -mill conflict, but instead, for the U.S. and our allies, increasingly clear that cyber, and again, misinformation, disinformation, will be just as critical as military might going forward in the 21st century. The second aspect of China's strategic strategy 
deals with its efforts to wage influence campaigns beyond its borders. The PRC has tried to dictate, dictate how foreign entities characterize sensitive topics like the Dalai Lama or Tiananmen Square. Beijing has often forced global businesses to conform to its worldview in order to maintain access to the Chinese market. For instance, dictating how US airlines put Taiwan on their global maps. On college campuses, we have seen China use student groups like the Confucius Institutes to shape and stifle debate. More broadly, the Chinese Communist Party relies on a network of think tanks, newspapers, and aligned businesses and political leaders to shape perceptions of China and the party. They have also used their economic investments abroad to leverage pressure, to pressure other nations to support their diplomatic agenda. Just recently, and this one was, I think, particularly noteworthy, just recently, a number of countries, including majority Muslim countries, signed a letter expressing support for China's tactics with the Uyghur population. And the Chinese government has pursued an extensive social media disinformation campaign, exploiting the continued vulnerabilities of YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all sites banned in mainland China to spread propaganda abroad. The party also dominates Chinese language services like WeChat, expanding control over the flow of information, not only within its borders, but within its expat community as well. These tactics are an extension of China's doctrine of cyber sovereignty. The idea that the state has the absolute right to control information within its border. China has already brought this notion to bear on its people in the form of censorship, domestic disinformation, and the social credit system. But increasingly, we are seeing it exported on a global scale. Third, on the economic front, President Xi has pursued two economic strategies aimed at displacing the United States' position of economic leadership. Through the China 2025 plan, Xi is focused on de developing domestic Chinese capabilities in strate strategic industries of the future. At the same time, the PRC is working to expand Chinese exports globally to ex existing customers as well as the developing world. President Xi is making a play for dominance in areas like 5G, AI, quantum computing, robotics, and increasingly even biotech. In addition, China is employing the full power of the state to build the infrastructure, and here's where they're doing something different, and actually set the standards for new technologies like 5G wireless. Actually, adopting tactics that the United States used for much of the 20th century. But unlike the US, China is trying to set these standards to promote its own interests, rather than the notions of any sort of fair competition. At the same time, China exploits the openness of the international trading system to gain access for Chinese companies. And Beijing has maintained or even increased barriers to foreign competition. Globally, 
the Belt and Road Initiative to build infrastructure and trade relationships heavily weighed in China's interest. Accompanying this has been a digital initiative to promote Chinese telecommunications equipment. The goal is not simply to promote Chinese vendors, but to seed the global telecom market with equipment and services that could ultimately be exploited by Chinese security services. The truth is, the Chinese Communist Party is attempting to harness Chinese companies, civil society, and even overseas diasporas as an extension of the state. These efforts are frankly neither hidden or frankly very subtle. Over the past few years, China enacted laws requiring all citizens and companies to act in support of national security as defined by the Chinese government. Despite protests to the contrary, no Chinese company, however global, is actually private. These companies don't make decisions entirely for economic or commercial reasons because they are legally required to act as an extension of the Chinese Communist Party when called upon. And this leads to the fourth aspect of China's efforts to reshape the international order, its science and technology policy. Again and again, we've seen U.S. companies forced into joint ventures with Chinese companies or required to share specific code and other IP in order just to get access to the Chinese market. We've heard from American companies who have been put out of business after Chinese competitors stole their technology and produced their own lower-cost version of the American product with state subsidies. But China's blatant effort to steal Western technology did not stop at its border. The Justice Department revealed last year that more than 90% of DOJ's economic espionage cases and more than two-thirds of its currently open trade secrets cases all involve China. In particular, the Chinese Communist government views Western universities and government labs as fertile grounds for transfer of sensitive research back to China. And what's particularly alarming is that it sees Chinese expats, especially students and academics, as essential assets in these efforts. The fact is, Chinese nationals now make up roughly one-third of all foreign students studying in the U.S. Out of the 363,000 Chinese nationals studying in the U.S. last year, nearly half of them were majoring in STEM fields. And many of them are returning home to take advantage of the opportunities in China's growing economy. Now, my concern isn't necessarily with people who want to come here and learn and then go home. But I do have a concern that the Communist Party is attempting to coerce some of these individuals for technology information and intelligence collection purposes. Let me be clear. The majority of these students are blameless and make significant contributions to the research environment and to the U.S. economy. But we have to acknowledge that what's changed has been in the last few years, more and more, the Chinese intelligence services often preys upon this population, literally threatening the students' families back at home, saying, your son or daughter needs to not only come home, but bring a thumb drive back. The truth is, President Xi 
China is drifting from the international cooperation and shifting to a more nationalistic and confrontational path of scientific advancement. And while we must not lose sight of our own founding principles, we also cannot ignore the fact that China is now playing by a different set of rules. So where does that leave us? Left unopposed, this threat to global norms and values jeopardizes not just America's position in the world. It ri risks undermining the whole notion of free inquiry, free travel, free enterprise, and other values that have animated decades of global stability and prosperity. That's why I'm so deeply concerned by the Trump administration's erratic and incoherent approach. While the administration has rightly raised concerns about China, something, frankly, that previous presidents should have done earlier, the administration's unilateral approach to this challenge is not leading us towards success. After all these difficulties I've outlined pose a challenge, and let me make sure, challenge not just to the United States, not just to the West, but to all nations committed to democracy, individual liberty, an independent judiciary, and the rule of law. Countries like Japan, South Korea, Australia, India, and others, they all face the same challenges as the traditional West does. Yet rather than building a coalition to confront these issues, President Trump has alienated some of our closest allies. Instead of building a values-based international coalition to stand up to China, the President has minimized the importance of human rights and representative government, even when we see the protesters in Hong Kong standing up and singing the Star Spangled Banner. The President's insistence on framing this as a conflict between our two countries has resulted in little tangible gain. We cannot afford to frame this strategic challenge in simplistic Cold War terms, dividing the world into two and seeing who can weigh out the best. And frankly, this is not just realistic, given China's enormous economic integration into the rest of the world. The PRC is the top trading partner for more than two-thirds of the world. And like many of our allies, the U.S. economy is deeply intertwined with China. Meanwhile, while the China and the U.S. are competitors in many areas, as Nancy said, we also confront many common challenges from climate change to water security to North Korea. The stakes are too high for both of our countries to retreat into kind of a permanent confrontational basis. Instead, I think we need a comprehensive strategy to defend against China's bad behavior, to compete with China in the 21st century, and to strengthen the international order it seeks to upend. Here's where I believe we should start. First, let's talk about defensive measures and how to protect ourselves, especially in the short term. This can't just be up, left up to the federal government. It needs to be a partnership between the government and the private sector. That's why over the past year, I've been convening a series of briefings for business and academia, always partnering with a Republican member of the Senate Intel Committee and with leaders from the IC to give those outside government an inside view of what we've seen. I've introduced legislation with Marco Rubio, Rubio that would in part help formalize and coordinate this effort. 
our bill establishes an Office of Critical Technologies at the White House, which would be responsible for developing a government-wide strategy to protect against state-sponsored threats to critical American supply chains and technologies. However, I believe the government can and should do more. First, we need to protect our supply chains, especially for military platforms and equipment. An October 2018 GAO report found cyber vulnerabilities in near, nearly all U.S. weapon systems. And our Navy has admitted in public reports that it relies upon systems so compromised by our adversaries that their, quote, reliability is questionable. We can start by securing the Internet of Things devices before they're exploited. I have bipartisan, bicameral legislation that would require all government purchases of Internet-connected things, particularly coming out of the DOD, meet at least de minimis security standards. Back in 2018, I was also proud to support language into the annual defense bill that would ban the use of ZTE and Huawei components in government systems. And I think we need, as I said, a national strategy to, to deal with supply chains. That's why, why I, along with Senator Mike Crapo, introduced a bill to establish a national supply chain security center within the ODNI. Companies also need to fortify their own systems against cyber attacks and insider threats. Second, we've got to get a lot more serious about securing our telecommunication systems, especially when it comes to 5G. That means relying on trusted companies to build our telecommunications infrastructure. And it means setting standards that adhere to our democratic values. I've supported this administration's initial steps to limit the uses of Huawei and other telecom equipment from China. I just hope that the President sticks with these efforts, but more still needs to be done. I also believe that we need a serious conversation about how to both replace current equipment that is across the country. Many of our smaller carriers have bought Huawei equipment because, frankly, it's been a lot cheaper. Third, the federal government needs to develop better oversight and controls to stop Chinese investments in critical dual-use technologies. By law, all Chinese citizens and companies are ultimately beholden to the Communist Party, not their board of shareholders. And our corporate ownership rules need to acknowledge that. I've supported CFIUS reforms to expand oversight over these transactions, but we need to ensure that the implementation meets congressional intent and companies can't skirt CFIUS oversight. Another area I'm working on is much-needed beneficial ownership legislation so that the Chinese government and other bad actors cannot hide their investments inside anonymous shell companies. Fourth, we need to continue our progress on enhancing export controls, which prevent sensitive technologies from being exported to China. Now, Congress has made some progress, and the Department of Commerce is currently working on language to strengthen the U.S. export control system. But given how much cutting-edge technology and research and development is happening within the commercial sector, we need to establish these controls quickly and to coordinate with our allies. We currently partner with 42 other nations through the Australia Group export control regime. These are exactly the kind of international organizations that must be strengthened. Fifth, 
there must be clear consequences for American companies and citizens that enables, enable China's bad behavior. I've become increasingly disturbed that U.S. businesses and the academic community has deepened partnerships with China to gain short-term market opportunity while ignoring the larger geopolitical impact. Equally troubling, we've seen American investors pour money into Chinese companies that advance the PRC's military capabilities. We've also seen American companies develop technologies that directly <clears throat> enable the censorship, surveillance, and social control efforts of China and other authoritarian regimes. Now, these efforts may be good for business, but they directly support China's efforts to rewrite global norms and rules. And at the very least, we should make clear to both companies and academic institutions that complicity in China's repression efforts will jeopardize their ability to do business with or receive grants from the federal government. Sixth, we need to do a better job of protecting our research and development, especially the critical work that goes on at U.S. universities and research labs. Universities should double down on security and compliance requirements, things like disclosing additional sources of income or affiliations with foreign military and intelligence organizations. That said, these security measures must be enforced in a transparent and fair way. The goal is to protect our IP, but it's also to help these students and researchers being preyed upon by the Communist Party, not to discriminate against them. This will require creative thinking to flip the script on the CCP's efforts to coerce Chinese students and researchers to bring home early stage research in key technologies. Beijing re relies on its leverage, including families back home, to force individuals with access to federally funded research, sensitive research, to return to China for the transfer of such technologies. What if we actually considered expanding asylum asylum access to include Chinese students and their families if they were threatened. Now, it wouldn't be a guaranteed deterrent, but it might create enough doubt in the minds of the Communist Party that they would have to rethink their current tactics. But we more, need to do more than just play defense against China's tactics. This should serve as a wake-up call to, modal, to mobilize in support of maintaining our competitive edge actually a Sputnik moment for the 21st century. In 1957, the successful launch of Sputnik actually shocked the American people and our government into making remarkable investments in science education, STEM research, and a host of other technologies. Sputnik demanded and required a quick response. And it led to America's leadership, literally, for the next 70 years. We not only generally invented, or if not invented here, we oftentimes set the standards. Over the last 60 years, we've seen the integrated circuit, wireless communications, and the internet, the name a few, where we actually set the standards. And that helped move the rest of the world. That was an enormous strategic and economic advantage for us in the post-World War II period. And we need to match that effort again today. Following the World War II, the United States funded literally 69% of annual global R&D. Today, that number is down to 28%. And only 7% of 
in non-defense areas like wireless technology. Even if we are successful in convincing our allies like that Huawei and ZTE equipment present security, significant security risks, we've got to have an alternative to point them to. And if we look ahead to the technologies of the future, we need to step up our commitment to funding scientific research if we hope to compete in the decades ahead. It likely will mean a different kind of in de defense investment strategy. I've worried for some time that we are investing, we are investing in the best 20th century military that money can buy. With much of the conflict, unfortunately, in the 21st century, I believe, will happen in domains like cyber, space, and misinformation and disinformation. In many of these areas, like satellites or supersonics, China is rap rapidly becoming our peer. And while we spend $750 billion on defense, China spends 250 roughly. But that $500 billion delta, China is investing in all of these cutting-edge technologies. The United States needs to ensure that we are no longer over-investing over in legacy systems and platforms. Our defense budgets need to better align with the fact that the battlefield might not be the South China Sea. It could be the networks that power our grid or our financial sector. But ensuring our competitive edge also means mobilizing outside the defense industry. It means promoting STEM education and making sure our children get an affordable, high-quality education so they can compete. It means investing in U.S. infrastructure, not just railway, railways and roads and bridges, but it also means high-speed Internet and other connectivity. And if we're going to train and attract a workforce of the future, it has to be up to the task. Fortunately, this is an area that we can call upon some of our nation's greatest strengths, inclusion, diversity, and entrepreneurial spirit. One reason is that we are the land of opportunity is that you can come to this country as an immigrant and in the first generation become an American. China, with its oppression and persecution of minority populations, cannot say the same. Sadly, this is again one area where the Trump administration's policies have been remarkably short-sighted. The truth is, we cannot effectively advance our national security interests alone. Whether it's standing up to China on trade issues, advancing a free and open Indo-Pacific region, or developing a secure telecom infrastructure, it can't happen without our allies and partners. Acting in isolation only enables China to play countries and companies off one another, undermining our leverage and impact especially when so many companies, countries actually do share our commitment to democracy, global security, and a rules-based trading system. This is where the Trump administration, again, has gotten it all wrong, us underestimating the importance of partners in advancing our most fundamental interests. For example, our efforts to convince allies to adopt alternatives to Huawei have been constantly undermined particularly when the president keeps hinting that the restrictions on Huawei could be used as a bargaining chip in the context of a trade deal. We should instead be working closely with our allies and partners to create market competitors to Huawei that actually abide by our rules. This includes setting fair and open, secure standards for 5G based upon technological rigor 
not China's geopolitical interests. On the trade front, we should be making common cause with trading partners and allies who face the same economic consequences of China's behavior. We should be coordinating with our allies on expert controls and screening of foreign investments. Let's also recognize that our allies are ahead of the United States on certain key technologies. We should be coordinating with them on research and development. In order to pursue a free and open Indo-Pacific based on our values, we must deepen our cooperation with our allies and partners, such as South Korea, Japan, Australia, and India, while expanding our network of alliances. As co-chair of the India Caucus, I see real opportunities to increase our engagement with India on a set of sh shared strategic interests, such as maritime cooperation, cybersecurity, and counter-piracy. The United States also has a number of existing security arrangements with key allies, trilateral and quadrilateral, that can be bolstered. We should continue to enhance defense capabilities of our regional partners, increase interoperability, and support democratic institutions in developing countries. Using new tools, such as the recently established U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, or the new OPEC, the United States should work with partners to bring private capital to the developing world in a way that is, again, consistent with our values. Across the board, the U.S. should be rallying countries with similar concerns about multilateral mechanisms to challenge China's behavior. The U.S. and our allies built the WTO based on openness and the idea that fair play actually benefits everyone. Collective action on behalf of freedom and fairness can push back on President Xi's dangerous ideas and actually move China into a more responsible path. This will require a significant strategic shift from business, academia, and the federal government. It will also require us to focus our own approach. We need to increase our defenses, step up our response to China's economic ambitions, and strengthen our partnerships abroad. We face great challenges when it comes to China, but this is not a time to be fearful. We remain the strongest country in the world, and our values are still the envy of the world. We know at times, sometimes when we look at our current politics, that things seem a little bit of a mess. Um, but it's never been a very good idea to bet against the United States of America. I still believe that is true today, even with the challenges we confront. Thank you all very much. Senator Warner, thank you for a very comprehensive overview of... Yeah, that was the longest talk I think I've ever given. <laughs> But you, you, you laid out in a very comprehensive way the complications and the nuances of a relationship that, as we were talking about earlier, has, has shifted <coughs> tremendously over the last decade. And you know, can I just ask you to say a few more words about this remarkable shift that's occurred um, well, that has changed how we think about this, this really critical relationship? Let me, let me again, I, I stated this in my speech, but I want to reiterate. China's a great country. China has a history that rivals any nation in the world. And I remember when I was governor, um, leading a state trip to, to China, and was 2005, just 
incredibly impressed with the energy, the entrepreneurship, the activity. And I was, you know, absolutely part of the group that kind of embraced this notion that the rise of China and the rise of the United States, you know, there would be points of conflict, but they would generally end up with greater collaboration. My view, though, has fundamentally changed over the last three to five years. Part of that has come from increasing uh, words from businesses that have invested in China, that have seen their intellectual property stolen, that have seen Chinese competition with state-subsidized enterprises take out their activities. Part of that has come, up, come from the level of intellectual property theft that's taken place in this country. But most of that has come from the absolutely unanimous sense of everyone across the whole intelligence community that as President Xi further consolidated party power and reestablished the primacy of the Communist Party in ways that both changed the legal structure, structure and the business outlook of enterprises in China, that the goal no longer for China was a, a collaborative effort, but it was a real goal to um, dominate, and not just dominate within the region, but in a host of technologies and a host of areas ac across the whole world. So um, uh, I think that's caused a reassessment. I frankly think, um, and while I'm critical of, of, of some of the things President Trump's done, I give him credit for um, elevating this issue. I, I actually believe President Obama should have in, in the later stages of his term. Uh, and I think it, it, is, it is the, the foreign policy threat of, uh, challenge of our time. And the, the challenge we face is not, and we, we, we should not default to US-China as a comp competition. This is a competition between the Communist Party of China versus kind of any economy that is market-based, that has rule of law, independent judiciary. Uh, and that's why I think, uh, as I tried to make the point, that we need to rely upon these alliances and rebuild them. Well, you also said that we need to not retreat back into a Cold War frame. Um, but yet, we need to be able to go head-to-head -head on some of the technology challenges within our own values and our own systems. So that presents a particular challenge if you think about the spread of Huawei and 5G and technologies that have the full weight of the Chinese government behind them. So have you given thought to what does that look like? Sure. How do we tackle well, that kind of well, challenge? Let's, first of all, and I, I think we were all caught off guard. The government and private industry. And let's take again, I'm a little biased. I, I'm a telecom guy. I was co-founder of Nextel. I was in the wireless industry for years. Um, I think we, at least America, had kind of gotten a little lazy, presuming that every technological innovation, if not invented in America, even if it wasn't invented in America, we would end up setting the standards. And by the virtue of the world's largest economy, and we were usually very close. It did not invent it here. We were close in terms of the, the collaboration. And we never really processed that into policymaking because we always assumed we would set the rules, number one. And number two, we always thought 
we almost kind of had a hands-off approach that said we didn't really mind who ended up being the technology leader on the private sector because if we set the rules and we were the largest market, we'd figure out a way. And nine times out of ten, the market leader was always an American company. So, as as and we should, on 5G, we should have been thinking about this not just recently, but years ago. So what's happened is China has gone out. They have their enterprise, Huawei, backed by, in a sense, China Inc. in terms of financing. So they can offer decent equipment with huge subsidies, 140% financing, in many ways taking exactly the playbook that companies like Motorola and AT&T used back in the 80s and 90s as American companies dominated the earlier stages of wireless development. And we're left one without a national champion. So when we first went out and, and said, let me make two points here. With Huawei, we, we went out and I think inappropriately tried to explain why this is a problem. This is not a problem currently because there is a backdoor in the equipment. But when you move to a 5G network, it means it is much more software driven. There's not a single switch. And it means when Huawei only sells its equipment in a, what in a sense is called a full stack, so you have to buy all Huawei equipment. And if you get updates, you think about on your, your Apple phone how many updates you get on a regular basis. In a 5G network, the number of updates that you'll be receiving software base will be exponentially higher. And if you have a company, company that at the end of the day, and this is why the Australians prohibited Huawei, is, not, is ultimately not responsible to independent judiciary and rule of law, but responsible to the government. At any moment in time in the future, the government can say to Huawei, the next update you send, put malware in. And I don't think we made that clear that the problem is not, you know, the countries were saying, well, show us the current back door. It is the ongoing threat and the fact that we don't have recourse because Huawei, at the end of the day, is responsible to the Communist Party, not to a rule of law or an independent judiciary. So we didn't explain the threat well enough. And then when, if we did, and most of, the, most of the intelligence communities around the world have acknowledged this problem, but we have the challenge then of saying, if this equipment is a lot cheaper, and what are you saying, America, we should buy instead? There is no American company. So you have the competitors are Ericsson, Nokia, and, and Samsung, all great companies. But none of them have the wherewithal of their country that they're located in to match the financing power that China Inc. can bring. So we may need, and we have, and this is, this is a pretty um, dramatic concept, but there's a lot of conversation going on. We in this country have always avoided notions of industrial policy, where the government tries to pick winners or losers. I think some of that, when we're competing against a nation the size and scope and focus of China, may need to be rethought. So we may need, and we are having conversations that say, you know, should we, with our Five Eyes partners or with the other ventures, think about how we can combine and have a doesn't necessarily have to be American, but Western, and I, I say Western in the concept of, of not geographic, because the countries that were first brought 
this to our attention with more Japan, Korea, and Australia, you know, open democracy type equivalent that would have quality equipment with the financing able to compete. And that would be a, that is a dramatically different approach than anything um, we've thought about in recent times, but it is driven by the fact that when we're competing against uh, China with its size, scope, economic heft, and intellectual capabilities, we're going to have to think, uh, think differently. I want to ask um, one other question, and then we'll open it to the audience, so be thinking we'll have mics coming through. You um, made, I think, a big point of um, differentiating the government from the people of China. Um, I think everyone appreciated your call to not demonize uh, Chinese Americans or the Chinese nationals who are studying among, the, among us. But you also noted the importance of both uh, 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 the business sector and the university academic sector participating in, in a partnership to address the shift that you so articulately outlined. How do you risk, how, how do you assess the risk benefits of the engagement the kind of very fruitful, rich engagement with academia, with business, with with people to people, mm -hmm. with the need to think differently. How, well, how do we move on that? Let me try to take that in a couple of different ways. First, um, I've been making this point, particularly vis-a-vis -vis my beef is not with the Chinese people. And um, the best indication, I think, of, of the fact that is the people of Hong Kong. I mean, the people of Hong Kong are, are expressing in ways that has a remarkable, remarkable courage that the last thing they want is this Communist Party system inflicted upon them. So I think that strengthens the case, and frankly, I think m many Chinese students who are, who are studying here, who first get exposed to what happened at Tiananmen Square, who first get exposed to a different democracy, you know, we need to nourish that, and we need to be, one, more supportive of the folks in Hong Kong, but two, also constantly be careful in language and framing that this is not anti-Chinese, number one. And it's particularly a concern um, for Chinese Americans who are rightfully, um, horribly afraid that, that you know, there was an incident back in the 80s, I forget, I think it was the gentleman's name, Dr. Chen, I think, who, who was killed um, uh, from Chinese ancestry uh, during the 80s because people thought he was Japanese. This was during the kind of anti-Japanese phobia of, of that period. And then you, we clearly see the kind of bias that took place against um, Muslim Americans after 9-11. So uh, it is essential, and I don't think our government has done nearly a good enough job engaging with the Chinese American community on an ongoing basis to say, uh, because they are, they are very much the um, uh, trying to be exploited by WeChat and by by other tools of, of, of the Chinese use against the diaspora. And there's a lot of this going on, particularly in Australia. So put that on one side, where, where we need to continue to make this. On academia, it is it's a challenge. You know, 363,000 students all paying 100 cents on the dollar tuition. Many of these universities have become addicted to that tuition flow. And these are great students. Uh, and, and this is an area that we need to be very thoughtful about. But we also have to acknowledge 
the, and many universities are kicking off the Confucius Institutes who've really manipulated these students, but the number of our top universities that had intellectual property theft in the last five years would stun you. So I think we have to do this in cooperative. Let me just get to the, la the last point, which is with, with business, and this is the part where, I'm, where we've had some pushback when I see some of our friends in private equity who, the, much of our business community has kind of acknowledged this problem, but the private equity folks who may be making huge amounts of money by investing in some of these Chinese tech companies, who are helping build the surveillance state and the social credit system that would make Orwell blush in terms of levels of surveillance, and somehow say they bear no moral responsibility, I think we really need to, to expose this and, and rethink it. And, and what do we do about the, uh, given this complicated agenda with the terrible human rights abuses uh, happening right now with the against the Uyghurs. You mentioned the Hong Kong protesters. Um, what are we able to do about that? Well, that's that's again where, um, when an America doesn't make part of its foreign policy, human rights, individual liberty, freedom of expression, we lose our moral force. The fact that many countries, Muslim majority, sign that letter supporting the Chinese policy against the Uyghurs is pure economic intimidation. And um, it is extraordinarily disappointing that um, um, this administration has not spoken up. On the other hand, you know, I think about Senator Rubio, I think about a lot of my Republican colleagues, they have remained stalwart in speaking up about American values. And 98% you know, of uh, what I went through today um, maybe not the Trump parts, but the other 95%, I think most of my Republican colleagues will wholeheartedly agree on. Okay, let's take, uh, we're gonna take three questions from the audience. Um, we have Mike Renners here. We'll start with this gentleman right there, and then we'll come down here to the front row. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, thank you very much, Senator Warner. You talked about the importance of working with our allies. And please identify yourself. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is Patrick Lozada and I'm with the Telecommunications Industry Association and I work on global policy. Huawei is not a member. Uh, you talked about the importance of working with our allies on a lot of these issues, but I think it's, it's challenging because not a lot of our allies, or not all of allies in Europe or in other places, are necessarily um, on the same page and would be willing to limit their own commercial interests uh, in, in some of these issues. So how do we convince them? How do we work with them to push this agenda? Okay, okay. we're gonna, we're gonna, okay. uh, down here in front, and then this gentleman, let's actually go here with this gentleman and then pass it over there. We'll do the three. Okay, go. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Warner. Uh, Dr. Elaine Sereo, Associate Rector of UACU in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, I'd like to focus a little bit on the, uh, if you would expand on your thinking with regard to U.S. higher education institutions and what could the U.S. government on a larger scale do to support high U.S. higher education institutions so that they aren't so backed into the corner, as you pointed out, uh, with um, foreign students and with a third of them coming from China, so much is based monetarily on 
this, the survivals in the case of the rapid rising of higher education costs in the United States, of those institutions needing to bank on those students because without it, okay. our students can't move forward. Thank you. Great, thanks. And then we'll let you take a batch. Um, Senator, I'm proud to be one of your constituents in uh, Virginia. I was a... I know, but you've got to like, introduce yourself, too. <coughs> I'm Pat Malloy. Um, I was on the China Commission as a commissioner. I had five two-year terms. And what I saw was the change in our corporations from stakeholder to shareholder value, though our corporation felt their only responsibility was to enrich their shareholders and top I, I'm going to ask you to get to a crisp question. Okay. I saw the Chinese being able to play on that, that our companies would transfer technology and R&D and others. I was delighted with the Business Roundtable statement recently that they're moving away from that emphasis solely on shareholder value back to a more stakeholder value system. I'm wondering if that's part of the issue that we should be addressing uh, in taking on the China challenge. Thank you. Want me to go ahead and take a shot? Um, uh, and I'll actually try to do this quickly. One, more state and federal support for higher education. You know, we, we, I can, again, give you chapter and verse of the decline in support uh, in terms of public dollars, and we've simply increased the, the, uh, the debt limits of our students. So there are my 22 friends who are running for president who've all got a variety of ideas. There's, I've got a bunch of ideas in that bucket too, but we have to make higher education both more affordable and more accessible to Americans. But at the same time, recognize one of the greatest assets of our country have been these foreign students who've stayed and decided to build their businesses here in America. Northern Virginia is 40% you know, of, our, of our tech businesses are started by first generation Americans. So I do not want to walk away from that attracting the world's best and brightest. And frankly, we need an immigration policy that actually allows, I would think, more of these qualified students to stay here if they choose afterwards, because we have the both worst of both worlds at this point. We have, we have incredibly bright people coming studying, many of them wanting to stay, but we're not very immigrant friendly right now, and particularly hard with China when they've got the ability to threaten the family if you don't come back. And, you know, but the other students, they can simply if they're not welcome here, they are welcome in Canada, Australia, and the UK who've done meaningful immigration reform that we need to emulate. Um, in terms of uh, the BRT's question about stakeholder versus shareholder primacy, I absolutely support what they've done, but we've got to make sure those are more than words. Candidly, and this is, would be a much, Pat has heard my spiel on this, but we actually need to make capitalism work for a broader group of people, and I, I feel that will go to this issue. I think it goes to investment in human capital and how we treat it in the tax and accounting basis because the Chinese companies with their state support have a much longer time horizon and don't have that enormous pressure to make three cents next quarter that then sometimes makes the American companies disinvest in R&D and a host of longer term, uh, longer term issues. In terms of the telecom, telecom companies, I think most of the, um, most nations are, starting to understand, at least at the intelligence level, committee level, community level, that Huawei is a long-term security threat. And it's really based on two issues. It is based upon the vulnerabilities in 5G 
on software updates. But it's ultimately based upon the fact that if you, if you to make your country dependent upon a system of, from a country where there is no independent judiciary or rule of law, and that company, at the end of the day, is loyal to the political party, not to an open trading system, you know, you're going to be vulnerable. But we have to couple that with, one, the ability to think about how we help finance the way we did through the first three or four generations of, of wireless, where the Western companies could provide the same kind of financing. We have to provide the same kind of financing, whether it's through the new OPIC, or maybe it ought to be an expanded Five Eyes effort, or even greater effort. Uh, and we also have to have an alternative um, uh, that we can say, you know, and, and this gets into this where you get into an area where we've not done before, and the industry might you know, would have a problem if we start to say, here are our one or two champions that have the heft and the staying power. At this point, as much as I respect the, the three com companies that are out there, uh, I'm not sure any of them think they have the staying power to compete long term against Huawei, backed up by a China telecom. Okay, over here, Ambassador, uh, right there, and then keep your keep your hands up. Well, go ahead, and then we'll take two more. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Senator Warner. Uh, in your remarks, you had mentioned. My, sorry, my name is Jalil Jilani. I'm a senior fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, Senator Warner, in your remarks, you had mentioned the uh, growing outreach of China and the use of its military forces away from home. But then it can be argued that at the time of uh, their ascendancy, most of the Western powers, they did exactly the same that China is doing. So my question is that isn't this criticism slightly out of uh, place and self-contradictory? Thank you. Repeat the repeat. Uh, repeat the uh, you mentioned about the uh, growing uh, Chinese outreach and the use of their military forces away from home. That's, the, that's something right. that you mentioned in your remarks. My question is that it can be argued that at the time of their ascendancy, most of the Western powers, they did exactly the same that China is doing. So isn't this, uh, uh, this uh, 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 criticism of Chinese behavior slightly misplaced and self-contradictory? Okay, couple more questions. Uh, Let's see, th this gentleman up here and right down here in the front. Hi, uh, Tim Aiken, also a constituent in the Senator. Thank you for being here, sir. Um, prospects of reviving Trans-Pacific Partnership, and uh, sorry, a second question I'll try and work in here is that what is the sustainability of the current, based on your intelligence perspective, of the current communist leadership. Is there an opportunity for change there and how might that occur? Thank you. On the second one, I'd love to tell you, but I'd have to kill you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Senator Warner, for um, presentation and um, overview of the, where we stand right now. Um, my name is Elena Keith and I'm also your constituent, so Virginia. And, um, uh, I, my question is, so you mentioned there is $750 billion investment, say, uh, into defense, th that's our defense budget. How do you think, based on what you've said, it has to be reallocated and where new investments perhaps need to come? And should we make some 
particular educational programs and national priority, say, uh, and uh, create legislations to support that. Thank, Thank you so much. Um, the first gentleman's um, ambassador, your um, critique is 100% accurate. You know, that the, in many ways, the West had these same um, um, expansionary imperialistic tendencies. I would argue that uh, even if not fully implemented, at least the, the underlying values that the Western governments said they adhered to of democracy, rule of law, individual rights, and some expression of freedom, while not perfect, was at least the underlying argument. I think what makes, what I fear that, that China is doing, is I, you know, listen, the China's, Chinese military expansion is still relatively small. The Belt and Road Initiative is good old fashioned 20th century imperialism in a, in a different suit. But what concerns me is that what China is actually exporting is an economic system that is kind of a state-run capitalism. But I think more frightening is what they've been able to create in terms of a surveillance state using technology to monitor people's behavior in a way that is pervasive beyond anything that even the Soviets at the most extreme expected. So if you are suddenly saying to a regime, and I won't cite around the world, here, we will build your power plant, we will build your roads, we're going to offer you deeply discounted Huawei equipment, and if you put that equipment in, we can find a way for you to monitor all your people and all your dissidents. That, to me, is a clash of values that democracies, no matter where they're located around the world, or people who aspire to democracy, no matter where they live all over the world, should be concerned about. In terms of TPP, I think we totally blew it when we didn't try to sell it as not a trade deal, but a national security deal. And um, um, the, the fact that both political parties have, have you know, kind of walked away from multilateral trade agreements is of concern to me, because I think there is a, there's a reason and that we can help build those values in uh, if we do it right. Whether TPP and its, you know, some will argue that many of the countries we have bilateral relations with, I still think some international economic security order that takes Asia and parts of the Americas is an effort worth reinvigorating. Um, but the rest of the, the, the group has moved on, as you know. But I think that needs to be back on the agenda. To your question, um, I think that, uh, let me give you two examples. I've also had a little bit of time and focus on the Russian intervention into our democracy in 2016. Um, and what Russia did against us in 2016, they also did to the UK in the Brexit vote, they did in the French presidential elections. If you add up all the Russians spent in American intervention, the Brexit vote, and the French presidential elections, it's less than the cost of one new F-35 airplane. So the reason we know that Russia, China, Iran, and others will be back 
is because it's effective and it's extraordinarily cheap. So I talked to lots of folks in the defense establishment, and this is where the, the rhetoric and the reality sometimes don't match up. I think we all realize that $750 billion investing in all these legacy systems, that it doesn't long term, we can't take that $750 billion and move it to you know, a trillion five a year if we're really going to meet all of the needs in cyber and misinformation, disinformation, all the new investment areas, really make sure our grids and our, our, our systems are totally safe. But the willingness of the defense establishment who've said to me, yes, Senator, we agree with you, but we really don't have a process that says, okay, how do we actually reprioritize? If we're going to try to take, maybe not 500 billion, but could we take 250 billion of that 750 and move it into cutting edge research? I would argue for the longer term of our economic and power and values position, that might be a better investment than simply buying more 20th century stuff. Senator, you've given us a very comprehensive, very thorough uh, framework, both of the challenges and some prescriptions for how to move forward. Um, I, I want to thank you for taking time out of a very, very busy schedule to come down to share that with us. Um, we're very grateful to have somebody with your knowledge and background and energy uh, working what is clearly a, a significant set of challenges. Well, let me, let me just, before you, thank you, Nancy. Thank you, SIP, for this opportunity. Particularly thank the audience. Um, that was the longest talk I've ever given, and, and <laughs> I was getting tired. I can imagine how tired you guys. I think but everyone was a, spellbound. This is a big, big subject, and by no means is it, is it fully comprehensive there, but there, we really, it needs this kind of attention across all these areas, and I'm sure people in the crowd have got good ideas to add to it as well. Well, thank you, everyone who's online. Thank you, everyone who joined us today, and most especially, especially thanks to you, Senator Warren. It's really been a pleasure. Please join me in thanking Senator Warren today. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org backslash podcasts.